0: Do you believe one terrible tragedy can change an entire town? The people of Austin, Texas do. In the early 90s, Austin was half the size it is now. Compared to bigger cities like Houston and Dallas, it had a low crime rate and this small town vibe. But then everything changed overnight when four teenage girls were executed in a strip mall yogurt shop. For the next 30 years, the case would be known simply as the Yogurt Shop Murders, and it's a story that the people of Las Cruces, New Mexico, know all too well. Their community was shaken to its core when seven of their own were attacked in a mass slain at a local bowling alley one morning. Today, both cases remain baffling, unsolved mysteries. So let's dig into them together. It is so good to see you. I'm Amy, and this is True Crime Recaps. Our story starts in a North Austin strip mall on a Friday night. It's December 6th, 1991. Jennifer Harbison and Eliza Thomas, both 17, are working at, I can't believe it's yogurt, but it's not too busy, but there have been some weird customers that night. One guy kept hanging back in line, like he's telling everyone to go ahead of him, and then he asked to use the employee bathroom in the back. An off-duty cop was there that night and he remembers that this guy was gone kind of a long time. Long enough for him to wonder like what was going on. And he noticed that when he came back up to the counter, all he ordered was a Sprite in a yogurt shop. A couple of other guys didn't seem to want to leave. Some customers remember they saw these guys hanging out in a booth right up until closing time, even though it was obvious that Jennifer and Eliza were trying to get all the chairs up on the tables and fill the napkin dispensers and, you know, get out of there. They had plans that night. Well, I mean, sort of. Jennifer's little sister, 15-year-old Sarah, and their mutual friend, 13-year-old Amy Ayers, were waiting for a ride back to the Harbisons. So Amy and Eliza were going to be sleeping over with Sarah and Jennifer. And Sarah and Amy had spent most of that night hanging out at the North Cross Mall, which was a couple of blocks away. They walked over to the yogurt shop to help the girls close up, but none of them ever made it out of the store. Just before midnight, an officer on patrol spotted smoke coming from the yogurt shop. Almost 50 emergency responders rushed to the scene. Some local media also happened to be in the area, you know, with their police scanners on, so they went over to grab some footage of the fire, and the scene was chaotic. They had no idea how bad it actually was. After the flames were put out, they saw the bodies. All four girls were naked, bound and gagged with their own clothes and they'd all been shot in the head. It looked like their attackers had actually piled their bodies on top of each other that's how sarah and eliza were found and jennifer was next to them amy was in a different part of the store and by some miracle she survived the first bullet and managed to crawl out from under jennifer but her attacker wasn't interested in second chances she was the only girl who was shot again and for some reason she also had a sock-like cloth around her neck Based on the way that their bodies were burned, it was clear that the fire had started near the back door where their bodies were found. The dry goods were stored back there, you know what I mean, paper cups and napkins and things, and those had also been thrown over the bodies to add literal fuel to the fire. The whole area had been doused with lighter fluid. The back of the store went up in flames. And if there was any evidence left behind after the fire, the water destroyed it. Maybe the men were there to rob the place. There was a little bit more than $500 missing from the register. Or maybe they were targeting the girls. Maybe both. But regardless of the original reason, they did much, much more than just take some cash. The four girls were forced into a back storage room at gunpoint. They were ordered to undress, and their underwear was used to tie their hands behind their backs. Amy, Jennifer, and Sarah were assaulted. Now, these were the girls next door. Jennifer was president of her high school's Future Farmers of America chapter. FFA. And she was on the varsity track team. Her little sister, Sarah, was also into FFA and she played volleyball and girls basketball. While at the same time, she was also a cheerleader for the boys basketball team. Now her mother remembers her playing a game and then like rushing to change into her cheerleading uniform to cheer for the guys team on the very same night. So that is a ton of energy that I'm just so jealous of. Eliza and Amy were also active in FFA. Eliza was especially interested in agricultural mechanics, and she was kicking butt in her welding and small engine repair classes, and they were all nuts about animals. Amy was a popular smart girl in eighth grade, and she and Eliza were raising pigs in FFA, and Jennifer and Sarah were raising lambs, and the four girls were inseparable. You didn't see one without the other. Now, About a week after the murders, police got a lead two 16-year-old boys, Maurice Pierce and Forrest Wellborn, were arrested at the North Cross Mall. That was just down the street from the yogurt shop. Maurice had a loaded .22 and ammunition on him. Now, that's the same type of weapon used on the girls. And as the police interrogated them, the boys had the shocking confession. Maurice claimed the .22 wasn't just the same type of weapon, it was the weapon, but he wasn't exactly confessing. He claimed that the doer was Forrest, his friend, and then he took it further. He said the guys, himself included, used the money for a road trip celebration and they weren't alone. His story was that after the yogurt shop, they went to San Antonio for the weekend with two other guys, Robert Springsteen and Michael Scott. Unfortunately, even with his statement, it wasn't quite case closed. Maurice was a ninth grade dropout with some fairly serious drug issues. And as for Forrest, well, he insisted that he had nothing to do with it, but he did admit that there was some truth to Maurice's story. The two guys had been in the mall that night. So that puts them in the same place at the same time as Amy and Sarah. But it could be a coincidence because back then, you know, most teenagers hung out at the mall. So Maurice also didn't seem to know any other details about what had happened, or if he did, you know, they weren't getting it out of him, and they tried hard. But the harder that they pushed, the more his story veered away from the facts of the crime scene. And You know how it goes. In any confession, police are looking for details that only someone with inside information would know. And in this case, they just weren't hearing that from Maurice. But like I said, they tried every trick in the book to come up with something that would prove his story. They even wired him, hoping he could catch Forrest on tape, admitting that he did it. But no deal. Forrest wouldn't bite. And there was an issue with the 22 he was carrying. He said it was the weapon, but they couldn't match it to the recovered bullets. The technology just wasn't up to the task. And speaking of technology, both guys passed polygraphs saying that they didn't do it. So that was that. So just when they thought the case was solved, it turned out they had nothing to work with in court. So they had to let them go. Side note, 19 years later, in December 2010, Maurice met a violent end at the hands of the police. He was stopped for running a red light, but for some reason, he tried to escape on foot because, you know, that always works. And when they caught up to him, he used a knife on the officer not too smart. They shot and killed him, but his confession lived on. And you're going to find out later that it threw a giant wrench into the investigation, but he wasn't the only one to confess. At least 50 people either volunteered or were coerced into claiming they did it or knew who did it. But in the end, it was sort of the same deal. None of them could offer any facts that weren't already public knowledge or gossip. And by January 1992, the community was livid. They wanted someone to blame. So investigators held a press conference and gave them the closest thing to a suspect that they had, a profile of the bad guys that they had put together with the help of the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit. So here are a few of the highlights. They believed it was a group of friends led by one guy. They were probably white in their teens or early 20s. And the leader specifically, they thought was a high school dropout with anger issues and a criminal record still living with their parents who probably owned or rented a home or apartment within a mile of the yogurt shop. And they went further and said he probably took very little pride in his personal appearance. So they were looking for a mean, dumb slob of a teenage killer. And for some reason, that led them to the goth kids. You know who I mean, the teenagers wearing black? They figured maybe the girls might have been some kind of satanic sacrifice, but that theory didn't really have legs. And by May 1992, they had to let it drop. Now, at the same time that they're shaking down the indoor kids, three other men popped up as strong suspects. One month before the girls were attacked, a woman was taken and assaulted from a country western bar, which was only a, less than a mile away from the yogurt shop. It was a place called the Cavity Club, which is a very unfortunate name. Am I right? The, the timing and the type of crime seem too close to be coincidental. Then the police got what seemed like another lead that connected those two crime scenes. A witness came forward and described a man that they said they saw parked outside the yogurt shop on the night of. They said he was possibly Hispanic with shoulder length, dark hair, He was sitting in an older white sedan, maybe a Chevy. And almost as soon as police posted a sketch of him, people started calling in to point out how similar it looked to the sketch of one of the Cavity Club suspects, a man they identified as Albert Jimenez Cortez. He was part of a motorcycle club called the Mierdas Punks. The other men they thought were involved in this Cavity Club thing were Porfirio Villa Saavedra and Ricardo Hernandez. They were also from that MC and all three of them had fled back to Mexico right after that horrible night at the yogurt shop. In October 1992, Porfirio and Albert were arrested in Mexico and charged with the Cavity Club assault and kidnapping, but they weren't extradited back to the U.S. to face trial because they were Mexican nationals. So even though the crime happened in the U.S., they had to face punishment in Mexico. So while they were being held on that charge, they supposedly confessed to the yogurt shop murders, but almost just as quickly recanted, and stories started to come out that they were like waterboarded and tortured to get that yogurt chop confession, so you kind of uh, take it with a grain of salt. They did go on trial in Mexico for the other charges, but they couldn't find any evidence to say for sure that they were, in fact, the guys responsible for the girls. And to be clear, it was only the two of them that were charged. They never could find the third guy, Ricardo. And you know what always shocks me? The number of complete psychos that are probably in the area around you right now. It's unbelievable how many suspect names come up in these horrendous cases, like... Oh yeah, on little Melissa's walk to school, she unknowingly passed by four sex offenders and one serial killer, but they were all eventually cleared of her murder. Which means, of course, that there's like another unidentified psycho stalking little Melissa. And that is the same in this case. So maybe the bad guys you just heard about aren't responsible for what happened here. Maybe they are. This is unsolved, but they weren't even the worst people in the area when this happened. So listen to this. In 1998, a serial killer on death row confessed to the murders right before he was scheduled to meet his maker. I'm talking about Kenneth McDuff. In 1966, he and a friend kidnapped two men and a woman at gunpoint, forced them into the trunk of their car, shot the men, and raped the woman before strangling her with a broomstick. I can't even say it. God, save us from the human race. But the broomstick murder was solved in less than 24 hours because Kenneth's accomplice turned him in. He went to prison, but he was released in 1989. And one guess where he laid down his welcome mat. Yeah, you got it. Austin, and he was the opposite of rehabilitated. In fact, police think he started killing again almost as soon as he was out of sight of the prison walls. One of his victims was killed in December 1991, the same month that the girls were murdered. Her name was Colleen Reed. Kenneth took her from a car wash nearby the yogurt shop. Shortly after that, he fled to Kansas City. He was living there under a fake name, but his life in Texas followed him. He was featured on America's Most Wanted and Unsolved Mysteries for the murder of yet another woman, Melissa Northrup. She was a 22-year-old pregnant mother of two who he kidnapped from a convenience store he was robbing in Waco on March 1st, 1991. Her murder got him the death penalty. Now, while he was in prison for good this time, he confessed to at least a dozen other murders, crimes that he did actually commit since he led police to some of their bodies. And he had, you know, those all important details that only the person who did it would know. But when he raised his hand to say he was the one behind the yogurt shop murders, they suspected that he was just trying to postpone his execution by confessing to this high profile unsolved murder. So if that's true, it didn't work. He died by lethal injection on November 17th, 1998. Now, after he was gone, Austin PD compared his DNA to what they had from the scene and it wasn't a match and they could not place him at the shop on the night of. So after some digging, they gave it up and posthumously, posthumously, can't even say that, they cleared him. Then the following year in 1999, a new task force took another look at this case and decided that, hey, they'd gotten it right the first time when they arrested Maurice and Forrest, except they thought that the problem was that they had been leaning on the wrong two in that foursome. So this time they turned their attention to the other two guys, Robert Springsteen and Michael Scott. At the time of the murders, Robert, Michael, and Forrest were all students at McCallum High School in Austin. The girls were going to a different school, Lanier, but Eliza had transferred there from McCallum, so there's a connection. Even though it was a little soft, but still, a connection. A connection is good. But none of her friends say she really knew the guys at all, but you know, in a mysterious case, anything is worth looking at. So, anyhow, Robert ended up dropping out of school not long after the murders, and he moved to West Virginia. Michael Scott was still living in Austin. He was working as a mechanic. Now, they all had some petty crimes on their records as kids, stuff like alcohol related, driving with a suspended license, like that kind of thing, except Maurice. He had a little heavier drug related charges and, you know, that weapons charge in 91. But even though they didn't have the kind of background that could say, hey, these four guys can brutally execute these four innocent teenage girls, they still ran with it. And since Maurice sort of fit the FBI profile, that made him the leader in the eyes of the police. So what did they have on them eight years later? Well, not much, but maybe everything. It was Maurice's confession in 91 that made them take another look. But then they claim Michael confessed to it in September of 1999. Now, keep in mind, he made that confession after four days and 20 hours of questioning. And he'd been a special ed student before he dropped out of high school in his junior year. So both of those things are factors in false confessions. But, you know, maybe he was the guy. He told them that Maurice and Robert forced him to shoot the girls with the twenty two and he didn't want to do it. He told the police what they'd been bound and gagged with and where their bodies were in the store. Now, at the time, that was information the police said that they had kept back from the public. And they used his confession to leverage Robert into making his own confession that backed up what Michael said. Except instead of agreeing that he forced Michael to shoot, he said the other two forced him to shoot. In the end, the police thought that they had a workable scenario. Robert, Maurice, and Michael came in through the back door, while Forrest acted as lookout outside, not knowing what was going on inside. On that theory, all four guys were arrested in October 1999, but there were some issues. You're probably listing them all right now. First of all, Maurice's confession in 91 was inadmissible because the police threw it out back then. They literally said he didn't do it. And the guy who got it out of him, the cop that got it out of him, had very famously found himself under fire for coercing a confession out of two innocent men who ended up in prison for years before the real killer came forward and was matched to the forensics. So that was two big strikes against this being a real confession. The second, even bigger problem was that in Texas, the court can't use co-conspirators' confessions unless there's other evidence linking them to the crime. So Michael and Robert's statements could be used against each other, but not against Maurice and Forrest, if that makes sense. And there was the question of the second gun. A shell from a 38 was found on the scene. It was the gun that was used to shoot Amy a second time, but whose gun was it? They only found a 22 on Maurice in 91. So by December, 1999, Forrest had been turned loose. Maurice was still being held, but they didn't have much on him since they couldn't use the other guy's confessions against him. Eventually, Robert and Michael were tried separately and convicted, even though they both said that their confessions had been coerced. Robert was sent to death row and Michael got life. And the charges against Maurice were dropped in 2003. Now, even though the truth was that Thanks to newer technology, they knew the 22 he had on him in 1991 was not the murder weapon. Then more bad news rolled in. In 2006 and seven, Robert and Michael's guilty verdicts were overturned after a Supreme Court ruling in a separate case determined that their statements could not be used against each other because they didn't have the chance to confront each other in court which meant that they would need a new trial. As police were pulling evidence together to start all over again in front of a new jury in 2009, they used modern technology to test semen DNA from Amy, hoping it would be the smoking gun that they could use against the guys. But unfortunately, it didn't match any of the four suspects. So once word of that got out, they had to set Michael and Robert free because they didn't think that they would get a guilty verdict in another trial. But they haven't actually been, you know, officially exonerated. They tried to sue the state of Texas for wrongful convictions, but their cases were tossed out since they weren't proven to be innocent. They just weren't proven to be guilty either. And since then, no new suspects have been identified. But you know someone knows something. And in this case, that someone might just be the FBI. You have to hear this. So Austin PD and the feds have been in a three-year standoff. The whole mess centers on the DNA sample that didn't match any of the suspects you heard about. For years, they couldn't get a genetic profile out of it, but as technology caught up, they were able to pull a male-only DNA strand called YSTR. That's the genetic strain that's shared by men in a family, you know, fathers, sons, uncles. So if they got a match to a family name, Austin PD could theoretically narrow it down to the girl's kill. Or at least that's the idea. And we've seen this kind of technology solve other cold cases, you know. Well, in 2017, they submitted the DNA profile to a YSTR database that's operated by the University of Central Florida's National Center for Forensic Science, according to KUV in Austin. And they got a hit. The match linked to a profile the FBI had submitted to the same database in 2013 as part of a sort of test program. It's known as sample number 0161A. And right now, that's as close as they've come to putting a name on the matching samples. The FBI says... this is nuts. The FBI says they're holding it back because it's not significant enough to help solve this case since thousands of men could potentially share the same YSTR profile, but thousands of men didn't pop up as a genetic match, just one. So an Austin PD wants the chance to find out if it's helpful or not for themselves. The FBI says giving it to them would violate privacy laws. Can you believe this? If this guy is still alive, he could be out there doing God knows what. Everyone from the victim's families and friends and even politicians have bombarded the FBI with letters begging them to release what they know about this matching sample. But so far, they've still refused to share it. You gotta love jurisprudence. And I warned you, this case is a rabbit hole. And you know how that goes. The farther you fall, the closer to Wonderland you get. And some of the theories and suspects around this case are pretty wild. Now, of course, it doesn't necessarily mean they're not true, and you know we're not opposed to exploring some nutty theories. After all, this is a strange, strange world, and every time I think I've seen the weirdest humankind has to offer, something else surprises me. So I guess what we all need to keep in mind is, you never know. And that is my way of saying that this is a recap, this is what people are saying, not necessarily what we believe. Now, this is a lot of buildup, right? I know. Well, don't say I didn't warn you. So one theory centers on insurance fraud. Now brace yourself because you're about to learn more about frozen yogurt than you ever thought you would on a true crime podcast. I Can't Believe It's Yogurt is a, I'm sorry, but I just, I can't believe I haven't said I can't believe it's not yogurt, but it's called I Can't Believe It's Yogurt and it's a pretty big chain with headquarters in Dallas. You've never heard of it? Yeah, well, we haven't either. But maybe you've heard of TCBY. Well, As it turns out, I Can't Believe It's Yogurt sued TCBY in 1984 over their company name. They started out as This Can't Be Yogurt. And after the lawsuit, they changed their name to The Country's Best Yogurt or TCBY. That's not actually connected to this case, but it's background and it's kind of bizarre, frozen. Yogurt, fun fact that you should know. But here's some corporate information that is connected, or might be. In 1991, when the murders happened, I Can't Believe It's Yogurt was owned by Bryce Foods. The brother and sister, Bill and Julie Bryce, started the company in 1978. At the time of the murders, there were 700 stores across 10 countries, with three in Austin and about 100 in Texas. Now, five years after the murders in 1996, the chain was acquired by Fruz out of Canada. In between the murders and the acquisition, Bryce Foods was sued by the girls' families, according to the Associated Press. The suit named Bryce Foods the owners of the strip mall and the mall's property management company, claiming lax security measures. Because apparently there had been some robberies in that strip mall, and they never really beefed up security or cameras or lights, stuff, you know, important stuff. So they got a 12.4 million settlement out of that in 1994. But according to Texas justice, it was all very hush hush. They even claimed the payout documents were handwritten and it wasn't widely reported on. Now that might not sound suspicious on the surface. Obviously a lot of murder victims, families file wrongful death lawsuits. But in this case, it was the secrecy and the amount of money paid out by the insurance company that is making people be like, hmm, that's, that's weird. Well, the argument is that the company wouldn't have such a huge umbrella policy in place, but I don't, I don't know about that. At this time, this was an international frozen yogurt chain owned by a big corporation. I'm I'm not sure it's that strange, but the implication is that the money had something to do with the crime, like some sort of cover-up involved. And interestingly, that wasn't the only lawsuit Bryce Foods faced. They were also sued by some investors for fraud and conspiracy related to the franchise agreements. Now, there's some weird timing going on here. What do you make of this? That lawsuit was settled just one day before those four men were arrested. The timing definitely raised eyebrows, but again, I don't know. Is there a connection there? What do you think? Overall, the idea that four teenage boys could have done this doesn't really stand up. Not only does their DNA not match the samples found on the scene, but it would be hard for them to overpower the girls so completely. I mean, these were active, athletic cowgirl types. They're going to kick your ass. Now, most investigators think it would take an experienced adult male to come in there scare the crap out of them and control them completely. The shop next door heard some popping noises, but no screams. So most people think that the more likely perps are the two men sitting in the booth when the shop was closing up and the guy who asked to use the restroom in the back and possibly unlocked the door when he was back there, whoever those guys are. In such a terrible, tragic case, it can help to find some good around it. And in this case, that's the Homicide Victim Families Rights Act. This new law gives the families of cold case victims the chance to petition the federal government to re-examine cases that are older than three years. Now, before this, only law enforcement could do that. So you know how much of a game changer giving the power back to the families is going to be. Now, this case is one of those cases, as I said, that goes straight down that rabbit hole. And since we're already heading in that direction, we want to explore another similar case known as the Las Cruces Bowling Alley Massacre.
1: It was 8.33 a.m. on Saturday, February 10th, 1990, when 12-year-old Melissa Repass somehow managed to drag herself to the phone to dial 911. Emergency. Please help me. Oh, well, slow down,
0: slow down. We were all shot. Okay, where are you at?
1: 12 East Amador, Las Cruces Bowl. Las Cruces Bowl? Yes. Okay, and there were were shots fired? Yes. All of us were hurt. Huh? All of us were hurt. I think I'm the only one conscious. All of you were hurt? Okay, we'll get an ambulance rolling. Please. Okay, what's your name? Melissa Repas. Please hurry. Hey, Melissa. She'd been shot five times. Her mother lay unconscious on the floor next to her five others, including a six-year-old and a two-year-old, had been shot execution style at the Las Cruces bowling alley in New Mexico. Melissa and her friend, 13-year-old Amy Hauser, were there early to open up the bowling alley's daycare center. They caught a ride with Melissa's mother, 34-year-old Stephanie Senek, who also happened to be the manager and the daughter of the owner, Ron. She unlocked the front doors, and the three of them walked inside. The cook, 33-year-old Ida Holgein was next to arrive. She went straight to the kitchen to start prepping for the day's orders. The place officially opened at 9 a.m., but the front doors were unlocked. Around 8.10 or so, Melissa's Uncle Steve stopped by to pick up some things. He wasn't working that day, so he just popped in to grab his stuff and say hello. As he was pulling out of the parking lot, he says he saw two men, one older, one younger, walking from the back of the bowling alley toward the front. The older man passed a small case to the younger man, and by that point, Steve was pulling away, not thinking a thing about it. Around 8.20 a.m., those two men walked in the front door. Melissa and Amy were the first to see them. They asked them if they could help them with something. The next thing they knew, they had guns pointed in their face. The men marched them into the back office where Stephanie was getting ready for the day. That's also where the safe was kept. Ida was forced into the room with them a few minutes later. And she told police later that at first she thought the men were there to clean. Everyone was ordered to get on their knees and put their heads down on the floor. But Ida peeked. The men were looking through the file cabinets for something. Then they forced Stephanie to open the safe for them. They took $5,000 in cash but left some money behind. And not long after the shooting started, 26-year-old Stephen Terran showed up for work with his two little girls, 6-year-old Paula Holgain and 2-year-old Valerie. He had given his two-week notice, but he couldn't get a sitter, so he was planning to leave them with Melissa and Amy in the daycare while he worked his shift as the pin mechanic. But when he walked in, the place looked empty. No one was around. When he poked his head into Stephanie's office, he and his girls were forced inside at gunpoint with the others. He was in the New Mexico National Guard and wanted to be a police officer. Once they had the cash, the men could have just left. They could have worn masks and left the employees alive. But the fact that they didn't do that points to some other reason for this massacre. Instead, they opted to shoot them all. When it was over, they had fired 25 bullets into the seven people at close range. Then they torched the office so any remaining evidence would be destroyed. And they fled. But not everyone was dead. Melissa was bleeding profusely, but she managed to call 911. Her determination to get help probably saved the lives of her mother and the cook, although sadly her mother died from complications nine years later. But Melissa was able to describe the killers, and people who lived in the area and saw two men walking into the bowling alley that day helped add to her descriptions. But even with an eyewitness description and some random observers, the descriptions are generic at best. Both men were Hispanic with dark complexions. One man was at least ten years older than his partner. He had some gray in his hair back then. Today he'd be in his late fifties or early sixties. He was about five foot seven inches, 140 pounds. The younger man was a little taller and bigger. He had dark wavy hair, and today he would be in his late forties, early fifties. They both spoke fluent English, but the older man had a slight Spanish accent. Within an hour after the shooting, police had 10 roadblocks set up around the city. They were stopping cars as they passed through, but no one fit the description. Customs, the Army, and Border Patrol launched a massive manhunt with planes and helicopters, but they came up empty too. Las Cruces is about 40 miles north of the Mexican border. It's not a small town, but it's not the size of a big city either. In 1990, there were less than 100,000 people living in the greater metropolitan area. There are some horrifying connections between the Las Cruces Bowling Alley Massacre and the Austin Yogurt Shop murders. They're definitely both rabbit hole unsolved cases. And if you're one of these people like me who appreciate symmetry, you should know that the Yogurt Shop killers came in right before or right after closing time, and the Las Cruces killers came in right before the bowling alley opened, but right after the front doors were unlocked. Both killers murdered people while robbing the business. They both used a twenty two to shoot their victims. Both killers set a fire to cover up potential evidence pointing back to them. And both crimes are still unsolved. After the yogurt shop murders, the Las Cruces police captain contacted Austin PD to talk about possible links between the two cases. He said, We are hoping that even if it has no connection to our case, We are hoping that your community solves it. It's a tragic thing for the community, and even more tragic when you can't solve the damn thing. So true. Unfortunately, this case is one of those that is still a puzzle no one can seem to crack. It's hard to believe that these two men could keep their secret all these years, because usually someone will talk, and whoever they talk to will talk. But the complete lack of leads makes some people close to the case think the killers are dead. It's even harder to understand how this case is still unsolved even with three eyewitnesses. And what about forensics? They weren't wearing masks and they weren't wearing gloves either. So even though they set the fire, Melissa was able to get help there faster than they thought. They were able to lift some fingerprints, but the office was used by so many people that it's like hunting for a needle in a haystack. However, over the years, they have compared some samples to various persons of interest, but no match which is also mind-boggling. These guys are cold-hearted enough to shoot seven people in the head, including a six-year-old and a two-year-old, but they haven't been picked up for any other crimes. A year after the massacre, a detective told the Santa Fe, New Mexican, that they thought the crime was premeditated, well-researched, and brutal enough to send a message to someone who, what, and why are still unanswered questions. And just in case you were wondering, the bowling alley reopened a week later and stayed open until 2018. Although it changed hands a few times, but as of 2020, the building is abandoned. Melissa and Ida are still alive as far as we know. And this case remains unsolved to this day. But if you know anything that might help ID the shooters, please call Las Cruces Crime Stoppers at one 800 222 8477. They're offering a $25,000 reward for information. And that's your recap. If you like getting all the crime in half the time, it would mean so much to us if you would subscribe and give this show a five-star review. It only takes a minute, but it means the world to us. Thanks again for spending your time with me today. Amy and I are here with new recaps every week. So until next time, take care.